From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, April 9th. A natural gas plant operator in Utah has started mining a novel resource, cryptocurrency. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom looks at a new type of extraction happening just outside of Moab. Operators at West Coast Blue Hills Natural Gas Processing Plant had a problem. After the Greentown pipeline was shut down by regulators who deemed it hazardous, Blue Hills gas was left stranded. And unfortunately, these oil wells are not like your kitchen faucet where you can turn it on and off at your pleasure. That's Steve Degenfelder, land manager and spokesman for Westco Operating and Kirkwood Oil and Gas. And so we had no other recourse but to flare the gas that, that would have otherwise been sold down the pipeline. Conservationists and locals criticized that flaring as an eyesore and an environmental toll in a pristine southern Utah landscape known for being a dark sky area. But last year, a company called Easy Blockchain offered a solution. That sound is an easy smart box mobile mining unit. It's about the size of a shipping container. Inside is an off-the-grid mobile data center, a wall of fans, and a number of computers running complex algorithms. Its purpose is to virtually mine bitcoins. They just do one thing. They mine cryptocurrency. They mine bitcoin specifically. You plug in power. You plug in an Ethernet cable. You connect it to the mining pool, and you're done. That's Louis Arouse, an operations manager at Easy Blockchain. He helped set up Westco's Bitcoin box. His company also has mining boxes in Wyoming, Canada, and New York. Arouse explains that the problem with Bitcoin mining is that it takes a lot of energy. Currently, total Bitcoin mining in the world uses around 120 terawatt hours per year. That's more than the yearly consumption of Argentina. Entrepreneurial miners have searched the world for cheap sources of electricity to make their mining profitable. Let's say aluminum, steel, and steel plants that were no longer being used abandoned hydroelectric plants, um, coal mining, areas like that. A cheap source of electricity is just what oil and gas plants like Blue Hills have. Well, why can't we turn the biggest black eye of cryptocurrency mining and turn it into one of its benefits? Because for many of these operations, they need to be able to have something that will constantly use energy in a small footprint. Running the gas through a generator rather than burning it also cuts down on emissions, according to Degenfelder. Not to mention that one Bitcoin today is worth over $50,000. And a once-wasted resource can now make Wesco real money. In Utah right now, they are at... A company like Blue Hills might get around $2 per thousand cubic feet of natural gas if sold through a pipeline. I'm going to give you round numbers. So let's say... But today they could make around $30 per thousand cubic feet if that resource is used to generate electricity for Bitcoin mining. Uh, you'd be looking at about um, $208,000. That's a per-month estimate of revenue. Meanwhile, Degenfelder says his company's tax burden hasn't changed. They still pay local and state production taxes and royalty on the gas used. And what they end up mining in cryptocurrency is reported to the state. Around the country, operators are looking for ways to benefit from otherwise wasted or stranded natural gas. Here's Steve Degenfelder again. Everybody gets infatuated with the term Bitcoin, but it could be utilizing that natural gas to to generate electricity that's off the grid, that earns something else. For this plant outside of Moab, cryptocurrency mining made the most sense. Of course, the future value of Bitcoin isn't very certain. But as this pandemic showed, neither is the price for gas. Justin Higginbottom reporting for KZMU News.
This story was made possible through a grant from the Grand County Office of Economic Development, helping KZMU support freelance journalists like Justin and their meaningful reporting. Deb Holland was recently confirmed as the Secretary of the Interior only a few weeks ago, but she's already facing pressure to reverse former President Trump's 2017 decision to shrink Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. And this week, Secretary Holland is on the ground in Utah to visit the monuments firsthand and meet with stakeholders. KSJD's Lucas Brady Woods reports. Deb Holland is the recently confirmed Secretary of the Interior and the first Native American cabinet official. She's only been in office for a few weeks, but she isn't wasting any time. Secretary Holland was in Utah on Thursday touring Bears Ears National Monument and was joined by a delegation of tribal leaders and state elected officials. Her visit comes as President Biden is facing pressure to reverse his predecessor's decision to significantly reduce the size of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Back in 2017, former President Trump announced that he would reduce the size of Bears Ears by 85% and Grand Staircase Escalante by half. But Holland made little indication on Thursday about the Biden administration's plan for the two national parks. According to the secretary, there's work to be done first. My message is really very simple. I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. I know that decisions about public lands are incredibly impactful to the people who live nearby. Holland said she wants to take local perspectives back to President Biden, who she says will be the one to make the final plan for the monuments. The local stakeholders she plans to meet with include ranchers, archaeologists, and the San Juan County Board of Commissioners, among others. Utah Senator Mitt Romney was among the elected officials accompanying the secretary. He said the specific designation of the land isn't as important to him as what it's used for. Instead, he said he wants to see President Biden use this opportunity to bring Americans together during a divisive time. The administration could do something permanent. The president has a way, an opportunity to bring people together and to create more unity. He also talked about the problems caused by jumping back and forth between administrations with conflicting agendas about public land. But tribal leaders, including vice chairman of the Hopi tribe, Clark Tenekongva, challenged the delegation of Utah elected officials to follow up on their words by introducing concrete legislation in Congress. Vice Chairman Tenekongva said that's the only way any permanent changes will be made to the National Monuments of Southeast Utah. Along with leaders from the Hopi tribe, there were also representatives from the Navajo, Zuni, and Ute Mountain Ute tribes. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in the Four Corners. That piece comes from our partners at KSJD in Cortez, Colorado. And now we head to our weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters and editors about the stories they most recently covered in our area. There's some rumblings at the Moab City Police Department. Three officers have resigned, and one will be moving to part-time status. Another is on desk duty while he is investigated for allegedly completing an illegal search and seizure. And Chief Brad Edge is working in the office after a shoulder injury. Times Independent Doug McMurdo has more from their coverage. Our big story of the week regards the Moab Police Department. They lost uh, 25% of their officers, so they're interviewing potential candidates, uh, applicants this week. Um, I had a sit-down with Chief uh, Brett Edge last week uh, to discuss uh, the attrition that the department is facing. Um, staffing has always been an issue at the Moab Police Department. Mm. But he, he alluded to um, you know, morale is low um, in large part 
I think is low at a lot of places um, because of the pandemic, the mask mandate, uh, inability to have in-person meetings. It's taken a toll on, on officers. Um, none of that really explains why five of them have left. And another one is under investigation for uh, alleged civil rights allegations. So he's on desk duty and, and not available. Right. You know, I've been a reporter for a while, and um, police departments and sheriff's offices, um, for whatever reason, they're just um, infected with this kind of drama from time to time. Chief mm-hmm. Edge was very grateful to uh, the mayor and city council and the uh, top city administrators uh, for supporting him and the department. And he had some very kind words to say uh, about his um, employees who are sticking around. So uh, I think he's, you know, struggling with leadership issues. When mm-hmm. morale is low, I think it affects everybody. And they have such a, a critical mission. We need them um, to be at their best. I, I reached out to Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan about the the officers who resigned and one who moved to part-time status and and she said, you know, the police department's diminished capacity absolutely affects their ability to enforce the law and investigate cases sufficiently for prosecution. So it's a it's a big it's a big issue. It it really is. And um, I know that Chief Edge had reached out to Sheriff uh, Steve White um, in an effort to you know, maybe they can overlap coverages during patrol or whatever, but um, mm-hmm. nothing official had, had happened. So you know, mm-hmm. there, there is cause for concern. Um, yeah. A big chunk of our of our money um, goes to that police department, two point eight million dollars a year. You know that brings up a, a thought. You know, I've heard a unified law enforcement agency be bandied about the community for some time, and I'm not privy to all the details on on why that can't work. But I think that would be something interesting to explore, um, especially in a small community like ours. And it, well, it's actually, it's something that I've always, um, I've always wondered. Mm-hmm. I, I know when the city incorporates, um, part of that incorporation is as a charter is they get their own police department. You have a police department and you have a, a sheriff's office, uh, with deputies. It just seems redundant. It's funny as a reporter, I've learned that um, law enforcement agencies, especially more than probably any other government agency, uh, reflect the personality of uh, the men or women um, in charge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and their their tone or tenor really sets, sets the scene for, you know, the patrol officers all the way to office staff and, and everyone. Yeah. And I want to be very, very clear. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have no real idea what's going on at the Moab PD. I just know that um, when people start walking out, there's cause for concern. Mm-hmm. Thanks for, for the coverage, Doug. And uh, where else do you want to take us in the paper? Well, let's talk about the wetlands a little bit. Scott and Norma Matheson Wetlands Preserve. The gate's still closed. It's going to stay closed for uh, the time being. You know, our, our headline is, you know, a, another impact uh, of tourism because they're parking there. I was talking to uh, uh, Linda with them, co-manager with um, UDWR, and she was describing the, the trash and the items that she and other volunteers picked up 
um, hypodermic syringes and contraception, trash, food, discarded clothing. We're going to have to get a hold of it. And again, we're going to go back to policing. We're stretched thin. How are we going to um, expand patrols to include the wetlands? Don't know if we have the manpower for that. Right. And, you know, those things that you described, that's that's hard to hard to see even in a, a downtown city park, but let alone, you know, a conservation area or a reserve that's supposed to be for conservation. It's, you know, no wonder they closed the doors. Do you have any sense from Linda as to when um, they might reopen the gates? I, I think it's going to be sooner rather than later, but they're really... Um, they're really struggling on what to do about the entrance because that's where the problem is. People aren't hauling in a whole bunch of stuff. But, mm-hmm. uh, they are camping illegally. There are fire rings. And, you know, there was a, a fire there last night too late to make it for the paper. But Moab Fire Department was able to uh, limit it to uh, about an acre, which is pretty fortunate because it's pretty dry out there. And where else do you want to take us, Doug, in the Times Independent? Okay. If you have been vaccinated... You can continue to be tested for COVID-19 if you so desire. State health officials recommend that you do so. Mm, Okay, so you can get tested if you've been vaccinated. I think we're living in interesting times right now, you know, with uh, more and more community members every day getting vaccinated, but still, you know, cases are happening in Grand County. Uh, they they seem to be on a slight uptick. Um, mm-hmm. I thought they were going down uh, statewide, but it looks like this plateau that we're on right now is kind of sustained. And according to uh, the experts, that indicates that you're at uh, risk of another surge. Right. Just because the vaccine is here, it doesn't mean that the threat of COVID has gone away. Yeah. And I've noticed that even though we have the mandate, um, more and more people are not wearing masks downtown. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think it's worth mentioning that Grand County's mask mandate is still in effect until June 15th. Right. And finally, Doug, um, you wanted to mention that the Times Independent has a new freelancer. Can you tell us about them? We do. We hired Sophia Fisher. She is a uh, VISTA employee at Science Moab. That's her full-time job. But she was a writer in high school, and I assigned her to write about the road work going on San Flats Road, which that was her first story last week. She went to Capitol Reef over the weekend for an overnight hike on a really cool trail, and she did our Tales of Trails on our protection front for B1. And I think that people will really appreciate her writing style, and it makes you want to load up the car and drive to Capitol Reef to go for a hike. (laughs) Um, She does a really good job um, just explaining the geography and uh, a very engaging writer. Anyway, I'd like everybody (laughs) to give her a read, and um, uh, hopefully they would would be as um, impressed with her writing as, as I am. Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Noise, tourism, traffic, transportation, all of these issues are interconnected here in Moab. There's one giant concept that keeps rearing up throughout the years, a bypass of Highway 191. 
Well, the Grand County Commissioners this week joined the Moab City Council by requesting the Utah Department of Transportation remove the concept of a bypass from their long-range regional transportation plan. Moab Sun News editor Maggie McGuire has more from their latest edition. The story about the bypass right now here is so, like, meta in a way that local news usually is not. (laughs) Um, The first rule of bypass is don't talk about the bypass. (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah, the commissioners have been kind of getting into that territory for months now. Um, Do we study it? Do we talk about it? Do we conceptualize it further? Uh, Do we even include it on a list? Um, I thought Commissioner Gabriel Wojtek was kind of straddling the line when he said it made sense to have all the ideas stated, but if the bypass is such a non-starter, he is in favor of removing it from UDOT's list. Um, But he said future commissions could always put the bypass back on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he was, um, you know, uh, Commissioner Evan Clapper also, you know, sort of weighed in on that and just said, like, you know, kind of taking an eraser (laughs) and just erasing that concept, you know, doesn't necessarily get rid of the conflict. You know, and the idea that there is a portion of our community, I'm thinking specifically of the coalition of Main Street business owners um, that would like to conceptualize this further. Um, but we're talking about a notion at this point. Um, some people think that it's been studied enough. Others, like I said, want to go farther. Still others don't even want to bring it up anymore because they want to focus on other other traffic mitigation solutions. Yeah, and I, I think it's very, I think it's kind of fascinating to have local elected officials. I mean, I don't think that they would phrase it this way. I think that, you know, Obviously, um, you know, folks are sort of framing this as, well, we want to have a productive conversation and this is sort of like radioactive, you know, in the opinion of of some of the the city council members and and, um, county commissioners. But in another way, I think that it's it's local elected officials also just saying, like, this is too big, frankly, that this is too complicated. It's too big of an idea that it, it just seems as if folks are just saying, like, we wouldn't even know how to proceed for a, for an area like the one that we live in that, you know, um, is going through like a huge amount of growth that seems very unlikely that that will stop, you know, to have our elected officials who you really want to sort of, you know, be able to to take on the challenges to just kind of be like, we don't feel good about this. <laughs> Um, It's a really strange story, honestly. I liked liked your summary. The first rule about the bypass is that we don't talk about the bypass. Uh, Yeah, and I mean, it is really interesting because, you know, as many people have pointed out, like, theoretically, the Utah Department of Transportation could just, you know, kind of um, push along with a a larger plan on its own. I think that, that UDOT would love to, like, be able to say, like, okay, well, we're working with, like, the local communities, and it does seem like people are kind of just putting up their hands and, like, backing away from something that just seems like a, a political hot potato. Right. But, you know, I think that a lot of people have a concern that that just sort of leaves, you know, local voices without a seat at the table. It's it's not clear what UDOT is going to do at this point. We're talking about their long-range transportation plan, which has other stakeholders, even though Grand County and Moab City are certainly, you know, pretty important to that process. It is ultimately their plan. Oh, absolutely. And this is like an issue with, um, you know, rural communities that sort of are, are hugging 191 beyond us, you know, mm-hmm. the, the town of Bluff and San Juan County has a, a problem where 
you know, 191, again, goes goes directly through their town. They have a huge problem with, with folks just kind of just blasting through, <laughs> blasting through their town really quickly. Um, it's at the bottom of a slope, um, and they've sort of um, tried to work with UDOT to come up with like, okay, well, how do we also make this like a little bit more workable for our community? And these are these are problems that feel very local, but have ramifications and are complex to a level that that way extends beyond, you know, our our community. We talk about how Highway 191 impacts Main Street, how it how it could theoretically, if it had a bypass impact you know, different neighborhoods in Moab. But, you know, I'd also personally, and, and hopefully in the pages of the Moab Sun, we'll be able to give people this perspective as well is, you know, well, what are the ramifications also to this region? You know, like how, right. if this is like such an irritating issue for us locally, like why is it still existing? You know, um, what are the justifications for it? I think that, you know, putting things in that context also puts the the opinions and actions of our, our local elected officials in, in a better context as well. Because you got to figure, like, these folks aren't just kind of talking through their hat. Our local elected officials don't learn about this stuff just from reading the paper. You know, they're attending actually, like, you know, fairly um, high-level meetings with state and highway officials. And so getting that perspective, I think, would will hopefully, like, you know, make this a little bit more comprehensible because to be frank, the conversations that have happened at, at local meetings lately are um, without that context, a little bizarre. Well, thanks Maggie. I appreciate that perspective. Also, I'd love for you to mention another story in the Moab Sun News this week. This is about the community artist in the parks program. Yeah, we love the community artist in the parks program. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really good relationship at the Sun with the with the previous resident Samantha Zim, a wonderful local artist. And this year's um, in 2021 is a woman by the name of Julia Buck Walter, who we were able to to profile for this edition, and hopefully we'll be able to follow her work in the park for her term. You know, Samantha Zim from the previous year, she sort of was the the pandemic year artist, and that had some particular challenges because the the sort of point of the the community artist in the parks is to be a working artist within the park and, and interact with visitors. You know, kind of we all talk about folks coming through the area and, you know, <laughs> doing tourism in any way that uh, they see fit. So having the community artists in the parks is um, sort of allowing people to slow down a little bit, interact with staff at the parks in a, in a new and different way, um, and really like kind of enrich and, and deepen people's experience. And this particular program is for arches, but also um, canyon lands, natural bridges, monument, you know, it, it has a little bit of a breadth to it. So Julia Buckwalter is a painter primarily. So it's going to be interesting, and it was really interesting being able to read a piece about how she sort of is planning on tackling that and how she sees these subject matter. You know, she does these kind of interesting landscapes. And it's been fascinating, you know, as the the, the editor of the newspaper, you know, to be able to check back in with these artists as sort of their their idea of what this um, program could do, and also as like sort of their their um, artistic practice kind of changes because of feedback that they get from folks in the area, and just like sort of the the impact of you know the beauty of the area that we live in. 
in the Mobs and News has a really nice quote from the very first artist in the park, Chad Niehaus, um, who sort of talks about how the community artist is showing some vulnerability by creating their art in public, which, you know, changes the viewer-artist relationship. Yeah, you know, it's really wonderful that we live in an area where there are programs like this, you know, and that's sort of why we try to, to keep in touch with the arts and culture in this area, because those reflections of someone being vulnerable and, and letting you know what their perspective is and how they're seeing this area just so deepens and enriches, I feel like, everyone's, um, everyone's perspective by allowing you to see it through someone else's eyes. Maggie McGuire, editor at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters and editors about the most recent stories they covered in our area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.